0: Well, thank you so much, Zobia for inviting me and for hosting the seminar. I've been uh, uh, following, of course, the rich in, uh, tradition of uh, intellectual history at Oxford, particularly in South Asia, uh, and I'm really glad that I see a lot of uh, senior members here. I've, you know, Faisal has been has not never been directly my teacher, but has been a teacher in the field of intellectual history because we uh, follow his work and learn from him and other senior members who are here. Um, just before I start, just a little bit about the book, the context of the book. Um, this is primarily, uh, this book is written in, primarily in a polemical way. So it's a pop- popular form of writing. Um, uh, and the reason for that was, uh, partly because of the conditions under which this book was written. Um, I was, uh, in the UK for my PhD and once I returned to Pakistan, um, I made the mistake of repeating some of the things I had learned in the UK. So you know, whole, you join a public sector university, you hold study circles, reading groups, encourage students to uh, raise uh, difficult questions. But this was happening at a time when there was a creeping secret martial law taking place in Pakistan. Uh, this is 2016, 2017. Uh, dissent was being uh, crushed under the title of the war, this reinvigorated war of terror. And um, to keep the story short, universities were seen as the primary battlegrounds of this new hybrid war that the state was fighting. Um, it was, the, the, the claim was that the state is no longer uh, at war only militarily, but there is now a war of ideas uh, and the attempt is to, to play with the minds of young people. And they are academics who are misguiding the youth of the country. This is a trope, of course, that's been used, that's been increasingly used all over the world. Uh, in Pakistan, it just has uh, perhaps has more severe consequences. Uh, so universities became these, these battlegrounds. And uh, other than the physical repression against students who are not allowed any representation on campuses, professors came under a lot of uh, scrutiny as well. You may know that last year in March, uh, the Lahore University of Management Sciences tried to uh, hold a conference on Bangladesh to commemorate 50 years of of the breakup of Pakistan. And it was remarkable that that conference uh, led to an incredible backlash from the country's right wing um, to the extent that Rangers West were sent to the university. Uh, the vice chancellor was threatened and eventually the conference which was by the way mostly a Zoom conference had to be cancelled. Um, so even 50 years after this event you can see how history has this presence in Pakistan this almost dramatic presence where it has to be Perpetually denied as well, you know. Seventy-one is an aberration in the general march of uh, of uh, Pakistan's development. But at the same time, its presence is felt too heavily that it cannot be told Any mention cannot be tolerated. And I remember uh, uh, when I was given a warning. I was in the political science department at F.C., uh, the former Christian College in Lahore, and in a, and a a member of the intelligence came up to me and he said, you know, we're okay with whatever you teach, but we just have one request. Um, Don't discuss politics in your classrooms. And I was like, you know, it's, I'd be happy to honor this request, uh, except that uh, I teach political science. So just, guide me into how I can teach political science without discussing any form of politics in classrooms. Anyway, um, I was among a number of academics who was fired uh, from my post, and right now there's an unwritten ban on hiring me. Um, And, of course, a sedition case was also put uh, against me and uh, other academics and thinkers who were uh, pursuing similar trajectories. So. Uh, I guess this is, the, this is the kind of authoritarian context in which um, I thought it was uh, important to write a book like this, just to show, just to kind of trace uh, the roots of authoritarianism in Pakistan, but also make a certain kind of a political statement uh, that, you know, despite this kind of censorship, there are people, there are publishers, you know, my publisher Bilal uh, Zahur, who runs Folio Books, was brave brave enough to publish this book because many publishers were scared uh, of of publishing anything in Pakistan that has to do with the military. So it was a statement that there are people who are still willing to to stand up and there are people across the country, of course, who are doing it and paying a much heavier price than um, any of us have. So with this background, um, for for today's discussion, I'll just um, talk about three Themes. I mean, this book is called Eight Theses on Authoritarianism, but I think uh, today we'll discuss three salient features that I think are important in, in, uh, uh, in understanding the nature of authoritarian rule in, in contemporary Pakistan. The first is uh, has to do with this, what, what I call a permanent state of emergency in Pakistan. Um, you know, Pakistan, one difference, one way of differentiating Pakistan from India or from uh, other countries that do have a Republican tradition is that even up to today, there's not even a minimal agreement on how to run the country, the form in which the state will function. Um, even today on, on social media, there are they're, they're trends taking, trends happening. Saying you know we need the presidential system in Pakistan. Uh, There's also discussion about uh, having Sharia, having military dictatorships, and and the repeated interventions of the military has meant that we do not have that that uh, context or that minimal agreement that could allow for certain politics, certain predictability, or certain routine of politics. Uh, which is why this sense of emergency, which, you know, uh, in, in, in Urdu, they say, Nasuk delicate situation, is what remains one of the most invoked kind of uh, phrases in Pakistan's uh, political theater, that Pakistan is going through this uh, terrifying moment. They're, it's surrounded by enemies. It's, it's under threat of destabilization. And hence, it requires extraordinary measures for, for protecting it. And this then uh, brings me to this uh, argument about the crisis of sovereignty in Pakistan. Uh, You know, terrorists have uh, over the past 50, 60 years, there's been uh, a lot of discussion on how, even in our modern times, uh, political theology is extremely important for, for keeping any country together, for keeping any political community together. And of course, Schmidt is one of the most more important thinkers uh, in this tradition, that there has to be a certain worldview, a certain broader kind of uh, uh, a transcendental uh, point of view that that transcends the everyday politics uh, that holds the community together. That is that is that that becomes a sacred bond uh, in within which politics and decisions take place. you know, I, my supervisor, I was just reading her uh, work, uh, Shruti Kapla, her book, uh, The Violent Fraternity. And there as well, she talks about how um, political theology played a very important role, theology, both in terms of rel- the use of religion, but also the idea of, of the sacred played a very important role in the anti-colonial movement, particularly in challenging the sovereignty of the anti uh, uh, challenging the sovereignty of the colonial state. Now in Pakistan, we do on paper have a theology. We have a lot of it, more than most modern countries, which is why Pakistan is often termed a theocratic state. Um, since 1949, we've had what's called the Objectives Resolution, which said, which suggests that you know Pakistan, uh, the the objective, the purpose of Pakistan is to have, um, uh, is, is to is to is to enact the sovereignty of Allah and to, um, uh, to to ensure that all rules and regulations uh, in the country are in accordance with his will. And this is something that's reflected in the Constitution of 1956, of 62, of 73, uh, more so in 73, where the preamble repeats uh, uh, the, the objective re- resolution and calls uh, Allah the sovereign of Pakistan. So sovereignty belongs to Allah. Uh, what I find extremely interesting is that, despite this kind of transcendental sense of purpose, uh, Pakistan ha- has has uh, had a lot of trouble defining itself in relation to the world. Uh, you know, in the in the early nineteen fifties, uh, wh- after the signing of the cito Santo Pact, Pakistan be- became the America's most allied ally. Uh, in the eighties, of course, famously, Pakistan was hosting uh, America's Jihad against the Soviets in Afghanistan. And by early 2000s, Pakistan was leading the anti-Jihad in the region against the Taliban, again backed by uh, American dollars. And recently, it's led to some comical situations where you know, the foreign minister was recently asked his opinion on Osama bin Laden, whether he's a Shaheed or not, whether he's a martyr or not, and he refused to answer that. Uh, similarly, the tehrik taliban Pakistan, which is a declared terrorist organization, uh, and was responsible for the murder of uh, school-going children in 2014, the Pakistani state is back in negotiations with them to mainstream them, and they've even been called brothers uh, Imran Khan recently uh, celebrated the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan by saying that the Taliban have broken the shackles of slavery in Afghanistan. And he's a head of a state that is still an ally in the war on terror that, is, that facilitated NATO's war in Afghanistan. So uh, we aren't even sure today uh, whether we've lost or we've won because technically, legally, we are part of the losing side here. Uh, which is why many people call Pakistan a rentier state. You know, it, it uh, rents out its geostrategic uh, uh, position in order to 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 cut deals with superpowers and to uh, continue reproducing the, the the elite consensus that exists. And right now, of course, Pakistan is very close to the Communist Party of China. So Pakistan is the probably one of the few countries that's close to communist China, America, capitalist America, Saudi Arabia, Taliban, uh, which again shows the kind of uh, uh, almost like a profane nature uh, of, of calculation when, when, of, of our ruling elites. But the point I want to make is that all of it becomes more and more clear when the military intervenes to suspend the constitution. Now recall, I said the constitution actually belongs to Allah. Not to, so the people are not sovereign, the sovereign sovereignty belongs to Allah. And it almost becomes uh, comical uh, when the state intervenes, uh, the military intervenes, suspends the constitution and says, till the situation uh, is restored to normalcy, we will not be uh, uh, we will not lift this lift this suspension, which almost feels like you know it's it's like saying uh, right now the situation is so bad it's out of from the hands of out of the hands of Allah. We are the agents of order. We will go in. We will restore order and then hand over sovereignty back to Allah, as if Allah was unable to do that. And this this I think already kind of hints at, at the fact that uh, rather than having, rather than being a theocratic state, this act in particular of suspending the constitution uh, exemplifies that Pakistan lacks uh, a coherent political uh, a theology. like it, it's not anchored in a, in a coherent political theology. Otherwise, these contradictions would not have been this obvious. Uh, instead, there's brute power, this brute calculation and uh, brute force, of course, used against citizens, uh, which makes it, you know, I, I in the book I use the term uh, the profane state, uh, you know, a state that, that uh, does not abide by its own uh, theological premises, actually undermines it uh, again and again, which then leads me to my second point. Uh, this undermining does not just happen at the level of of uh, of suspending the constitution it also na- from this its it stems uh, naturally stems that the rights of the people are also suspended uh, and we can see that even in the normal democratic times uh, uh, you know trade unions aren't allowed student unions aren 't allowed women who come out to protest uh, are, are uh, targeted by the state, minorities, of course. So these are stories about Pakistan that uh, many, all that many have already heard. But I think one thing that again is emblematic of of uh, of the intensity of of the violence is the case of missing persons in Pakistan, uh, which I've highlighted in the book because I think it's one of those things that many people shy away from. Um, it is one of Pakistan's most scary open secrets. That's, of course, it's uh, one can argue it's a technique of governance that's increasingly being used across the world. In the Indian-held Kashmir, the cases are rising. In Turkey, of course, there's a history of, of enforced disappearances. In Argentina uh, and other parts of the world. And here, um, I bring in uh, 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 Professor Banu Bargu's uh, Fantastic work on uh, uh, enforced disappearances and the question of uh, sovereignty. Uh, she shows very clearly that you know she does a very interesting reading of Hobbes and uh, Foucault. Foucault's reading of Hobbes, and shows that what Foucault misses is the is the fact that uh, is, is the is the central importance of the category of the enemy in Hobbes and. Through that, she builds an argument saying that eventually modern sovereignty is not uh, just about eliminating conflict; it's actually about erasing and invisibilizing conflict, uh, which has this difference has serious consequences. Uh, because what's happening with with the missing persons is that it is a form of of terrifying violence. Uh, We've seen people, people close to us who've gone missing. One of my students, I remember, uh, was abducted from his home. And the effect that it has is not only on, the, of course, the, the family, but everybody around uh, the person who's abducted is, is naturally terrified by this like blatant use of power. Yet you cannot nominate who's done it because there are no records uh the state doesn't acknowledge it uh the 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 media doesn't acknowledge it the courts don't acknowledge it so there is this this kind of absence but this absence is 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 uh the the technique used by the state to show its presence in a very terrifying way it's this kind of you know ink that erases itself and I think that's that's one one way of looking at uh, uh, this form of sovereign violence as as this ink that erases itself and erases the bodies as well. So this erasure of both the ink and the surface is central to modern forms of violence. And of course, one can one one knows that one can you know that how at, even at the this violence is not something that just happens now, it's a reminder of. Originary forms of violence and how the state was built, and it's a disavowed form form of violence in which the state communicates with people without, in a language of violence, without showing itself directly. So this, so that's the one aspect of of missing persons. The second, I think, very important thing where, um, where they where where the, the case of missing persons, I think, can, can complicate our understanding of, of modern forms of power, is that when, when these enforced disappearances happen, clearly, it, they, they, it's, not, it's not similar to the targeting of entire communities or of everyone. They, modern power also works in differentiating people certain people leaders agitators from the crowds so you know this of course this has been happening since the french revolution you know interpolating certain individuals as the key ring leaders uh, the, the, i cite uh, some of the work uh, uh, that i did uh, in my dissertation where in in the 1920s 1930s the colonial state was obsessed with uh, not with with the crowds. I mean, we, we talk a lot about the crowds after the 1910s, 20s, 30s. By the 1930s, the colonial state is not as scared of the crowds as it is of certain individuals within those crowds: the extremists, the communists, the the um, uh, you know the professional agitator. And in fact, the the term political uh, starts becoming. Used more and more by by British bureaucrats or colonial officials in the 1930s for these individuals who they feel are shaped by ideas. So you know, so the so so there are a lot of examples that I give where uh, where officials are like, "Oh, this event was not political. This this labor strike." Of fifty thousand people was not political. They was they were they were they were just demanding better wages. But this protest of five hundred people was uh, very political. There were ten people who were who are known communist agitators uh, or uh, nationalists or uh, extremists. So this 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 understanding of who is political comes from uh, oh, it, it 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 started it started getting defined in terms of one's organizational affiliation, or one's adherence to certain worldviews. And this case of missing persons that we see is again, a very targeted attack on certain individuals that the state differentiates from the rest of the community as the ringleaders, as the foreign agents, as the enemies within. Uh, the, The question of course of the foreign agent is something that is extremely important today. Uh, in Pakistan, uh, also in India, um, you know, the, I, I you know, often say that uh, the number of people in Pakistan who have been accused of being raw agents, you know, Fatma Jinnah, the mother of the nation was accused of being a raw agent, then you had Zufkali Bhutto, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, Benazir, Nawaz Sharif, Altaf Hussain, it would almost seem like uh, raw is the most popular political party in Pakistan. And you can do the same in India with the ISI. Everyone who's a decent person who believes in human rights who believes in the rule of law is declared an ISI agent. Uh, so there's, you know, it's, it's, it's this equation of dissent with, um, with, with the enemy, I think is, 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 is one maneuver and the other then is to target specific individuals. And this differentiation I think is very important. Every time we see the state operate, it differentiates between, uh, as I said, between people who are uh, just protesting for a cause and people who are guided by uh, by worldviews. So this this differentiation, I think, is something that 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 becomes more clear in how uh, sovereign violence takes shape in in contemporary Pakistan. Okay, my. Third and uh, last point uh, is is about uh, is is on the is on the question of the form and content. Now, uh, here you know, one can one has one has of course heard about how Pakistan has a has a system of controlled democracy. That's in any case what I've called it in in. In my book, and here I think there's a very interesting dynamic between between the the form and content of authoritarianism in Pakistan. For historical reasons, uh, primarily uh, the anti-colonial uh, movement uh, and the and the regular elections that that have been taking taking place in the 20th century, uh, democracy at some level has a hegemonic presence uh, for. For for uh, both the rulers and the group, so very few people openly say, "Well, we hate democracy." At least those in power do. The, the interesting bit is even military dictators never say that they hate democracy. They say we are here to have to improve democracy, to correct democracy, never to, to dismiss democracy as such. So, this has been a tension at the heart of the Pakistani state project since the nineteen fifties. To, they want to they want republicanism they want democracy but at the same time there's this extreme fear of the people so so the hope is to be able to control the decisions of the people to have a, to have to have to set up a context a background context in which the will of the people can either be manipulated or, or uh, suppressed, while showing the while keeping the facade of an electoral democracy going, and you know, I think this is this idea of, of a hybrid democracy, of a controlled democracy, of a manufactured democracy, is something that is happening uh, across the world now. With you know, one can argue even in places like uh, Russia or you know, uh, Turkey or many other maybe you know, it's a little different everywhere. But Pakistan in that this regard has to be given credit because we've we were the pioneers in the 50s and it's been 60, 65 years, and this has been this process has been perfected. And how do we how how does the state manage elections? I'll read a quote. Uh, so Says time has come, and so I'm quoting: "Time has come to end the political role of intelligence agencies in Pakistan. They have ruined the country by manufacturing puppets. Agencies, so these are secret agencies, only promote those individuals it can control. They want controlled politicians, controlled judges, and controlled bureaucrats. They manipulate elections to install puppets. A country cannot function like this. This is Imran Khan." in 2007, was now the prime minister. <laughs> he was widely uh, accused of being a puppet himself. <laughs> so, <laughs> this, so, so one can, um, so, and he, I think he explains it way better than anybody else on how the system works. We have what is called accountability, the accountability process, the anti-corruption uh, drives that happen Uh, every few years. Uh, I argue that the nature of capitalism in Pakistan is such that it's very difficult to amass wealth without without, uh, breaking at least certain aspects of the law. So in that sense, there's almost like universal guilt uh, amongst the ruling elites who also are politicians, uh, also happen to be like, that's the class from which politicians come from. So so if the intelligence agencies want to cobble together a coalition, uh, a winnable coalition, all they need to do is begin an anti-corruption drive and and tell the leading politicians that if you do not support the party we want you to support in these elections, um, we, we will open up cases against you. And this is a remarkably effective method of disciplining the elites, the political elites. Uh, there's a term called the king's party. You know, the the part, the, the parties that are supported by the establishment, and they keep changing their names and their faces. But but they but they, the, at the core, is their loyalty to what's called the military establishment, uh, and to their own financial interests. So this is one way. The second way, of course, is to disqualify or at times kill opponents, which again Pakistan has a sordid history of. And third is, is the election day rigging. Uh, there have been hardly any elections in Pakistan where uh, there haven't been very serious allegations of uh, rigging and the recent ones in 2018 were again very controversial because it was widely believed that Imran Khan, whose quote I just read from, was supported by the military establishment and was brought in as a puppet, uh, who who brought in all these elective, they're called electable politicians from different uh, parties in order to to form a winning uh, coalition. Now, the idea then is to have have a puppet who rules, who has of course certain powers, but who cannot question the basic architecture of power, which means the security issues, the foreign policies, as well as certain major business interests owned by the military will not be under the purview of the government and there will be silence on them. Now, this this form one can say is useless. uh, So one can dismiss form, but I think it's always a mistake to dismiss form because form is if form has 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 can can develop a content of its own and this particular relationship between the content between content this authoritarian content and democratic form I think it produces all kinds of tensions within Pakistani politics that are at times very productive for oppositional politics so on paper Naturally, we have a lot of rights constitutionally. And in fact, uh, from the missing persons to questions of student rights, workers' rights, women's rights, minority rights, are often raised through available platforms uh, by invoking the laws that the state has given. But more interestingly, every time a prime minister has been brought into power as a puppet, by the military establishment almost every time no matter how powerful or insignificant how popular or unpopular that prime minister is he or she has gotten into a conflict with the military establishment by taking their role as prime ministers semi seriously and this this tension i think it, it is very is is very central to understanding the drama of pakistani so you know, even recently, uh, it's interesting that the that the chief of army staff brings the prime minister, but then the prime minister has the power to give the chief of army staff an extension or to dismiss him. And recently, this particular prime uh, government saw a major crisis between the prime minister and the chief of army staff, where the prime minister was unwilling to give him an extension, and now this talk of how he is about to be discarded by the military. Similarly, Nawaz Sharif. Uh, was, again, a puppet formed by the military in the 1980s. And by 1999, by he was challenging the military's uh, hold on power, and there had to be a military coup to overthrow him. And even this time, uh, as we speak, he's in England in exile. Similarly with Bhutto, who was, you know, Yub Khan's, General Yub Khan's right-hand man, a military, military's favorite guy who was promoted by the military, eventually turned on them and uh, had to be killed, hanged in 1979. Uh, even Benazir Bhutto made deals with the military and eventually she had to be removed. Uh, this is not just true for politicians, it's true for other institutions as well. On paper, the, the judiciary is free. And from time to time, there are judges who refuse to play the game. And that's where what I call going off script. This is a scripted, if we imagine this to be a scripted form of democracy, there are always characters who go off script. The script can never be fully controlled in advance. There are always elements of contingency that can be invoked and that can lead to reversals. And recently we've had uh, judges in the Islamabad High Court who are challenging some of the taboo uh, financial uh, uh, institutions, the financial empire of the military in 2007, uh, we saw a major lawyers' movement in the country, which uh, was precipitated by uh, the dismissal of the Chief Justice of Pakistan, if, uh, who again had uh, uh, challenged the domain of the military, particularly on the missing persons case, but on other cases as well. So he, so the system works in such a way that the the they must always remain uh, a gap between the content and the form. So the relationship of those in power, of free judges, of prime ministers must be ironic to their position, legally speaking. But if they don't have a sense of irony, which some people don't, uh, then the system uh, goes into a state of crisis. When a prime minister takes himself seriously, when a judge takes himself seriously, when a politician takes himself seriously, when that gap, that, that gap, uh, that ironic gap is removed and uh, then the exercise of power becomes more difficult so um, to end this point uh, uh, as i said corruption and anti corruption in pakistan is not about corruption it actually fuels corruption if anything because precisely because it's it's uh, it gives an opening to to corrupt politicians to keep doing their corrupt business as long as they leave to the king But it is what can be called a technique of governance. Anti-corruption is a technique of governance. Uh, This democratic facade is a necessary condition through which authoritarianism legitimizes itself. But precisely because of the nature of the form, uh, there's always this contingent possibility of reversals of certain individuals going off script and taking themselves seriously. I'd just like to uh, uh, end by saying, I think what is interesting about the moment right now in Pakistan, despite uh, the horrors that we hear of, is that there are a lot of young people across the country who are pretty much tired with the kind of uh, fear-mongering that, uh, that has that, that, that's been going on for so long. Uh, you know, if you call someone a raw agent now, you know, we all have been called that. Most people just laugh about it now. It's it's something that has become a joke. I think the the corruption of language is such that the, the state no longer has the adequate words to nominate the opposition, nominate these new movements like the Pashtun Tafas movement, which is a movement of, Pashtuns who've been ravaged by war, or of Auraq March, which is, which is uh, a movement of women asserting themselves uh, in the public sphere, or, you know, uh, Christian rights activists, Baloch activists, uh, trade unionists, people from different walks of life who are, who are rejecting these labels. They no longer have the potency, these words no longer have the potency that they did to discredit individuals. Uh, which also raises the danger of direct forms of violence when, when words uh, cannot discredit people. But I think uh, something new is definitely taking place in Pakistan. Uh, we may not have uh, the adequate words or concepts for it, but I think new forms of political belonging are appearing on, onto the stage slowly. and. Uh, despite the difficulties, I think there's a lot of reason to remain hopeful. I'll just stop here. Thank you.